Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Thursday, October 6th. Now, New York Times White House correspondent Maggie Haberman will talk about her latest reporting on Donald Trump telling his lawyer to tell the National Archives that he had returned all the government documents he had taken from the White House when he really hadn't, another potential legal problem for Trump. But we'll talk mostly about Maggie's new book, Confidence Man, about Donald Trump, that turns out to be quite the history book about New York City in the 80s. So we will take a trip back to the Ed Koch, Al Sharpton, Donald Trump, George Steinbrenner, Tom Wolfe, Ronald Reagan as president, Rudy Giuliani as U.S. attorney era in this city. And I look forward, I think, now to a kind of tragic comic New York history romp with Maggie, who explains how the New York politics of then contributed to the threat to democracy nationally from Trump today. And Maggie did report for the Daily News and New York Post and had kind of a tabloid's eye view of the world before she joined the Times. So she brings that experience, among many other things, to the conversation. Maggie Haberman is senior political correspondent for the New York Times and a political analyst for CNN and author of, here's the full title of the book, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Always great to have you, Maggie. Congratulations on the book and welcome back to WNYC. Brian, thanks so much. It is a highlight to be here with you talking about a a book that's partly about New York City. A lot of this book is an explicitly New York history book. Can you tell everybody what New York story you set out to tell, big picture, in the context of your Donald Trump story? Sure. So there there are a couple of threads that come together uh, for uh, the, the story that I'm telling about the world that Donald Trump came up from, was shaped by, and then exported to Washington, D.C. when he became president. But it was a, it was a morass of, of dysfunction where corruption touched on various aspects of the media, of politics. You know, machine boss politics, as you know, dominated New York uh, in, in the decades before the 1980s when, ironically, you know, it, it, the, the corruption buster was Rudy Giuliani. Um, uh, and at least before he became mayor and then had his own corruption scandals. But uh, mm-hmm. and there were there was tremendous racial strife, um, you know, for for as much as New York is described as an avatar of progressivism, there are significant pockets of of racism and and uh, significant areas where racist attitudes are pervasive. And it is in this milieu that Donald Trump found his niche. And and he took this, I think, much further than anyone would have imagined. Was it um, in your book that I saw a factoid that Trump was on the cover of the Daily News 12 days in a row yes. in yes. the 80s about his divorce proceedings yes. and his first marriage? Yep, that is that is where you saw that. Um, you know, what happened was one of the the most epic newspaper feuds on a specific story just on a, on a on a lane of coverage but the lane of coverage was a guy's divorce uh and his his affair with this other woman and how it was all playing out and and everything became news one of the one of the stories that i that i write about in the book involves a, a former colleague of mine at the new york post bill hoffman uh who's now at newsmax and bill hoffman was the reporter behind 
the the headline and story best sex I ever had that I imagine a fair number of your listeners still remember, ostensibly spoken by Marla Maples to a friend about Donald Trump, never actually spoken by Marla Maples to a friend about Donald Trump. Hmm. Uh, and, and I described the story, uh, you know, which it was uh, Steve Cuso, uh, a, an editor at The Post, wrote about as well um, years ago. But I described the story that I had heard many times uh, about how this happened. And it was, you know, Bill Hoffman calling a, a friend of Marla Maples and asking leading questions and, and sort of confecting a, a front page out of it. And Donald Trump, you know, most people would experience prurient coverage like that and hate it. He loved that front page. He was proud of it. And what was Trump's relationship as we continue to talk about New York in the 80s as the seeds uh, to some degree of Donald Trump's rise in national politics. What was his relationship with Yankees owner George Steinbrenner, who also had a reputation of, you know, being determined to win, Yankee fans like that, but also as a kind of blowhard in those days? Uh, he was, well, what, what Trump found in Steinbrenner was this sort of prototypical example of hypermasculinity in the in the era of AIDS, and 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 I write about this, but Trump was really uh, rattled by AIDS. Uh, talked about it constantly. Uh, you know, was was viscerally afraid of of getting it. I mean, to be fair, there were a lot of um, very wealthy white men, in particular, uh, you know, who, when it was not clear how AIDS was spread, um, uh, behaved that way and, and acted that way. But I think that's part of why Steinbrenner was, you know, such a model for Trump. But Steinbrenner and this this clique of men who he was friends with became, you know, role models for Trump. He wanted to hang around them. He wanted to be with them. Trump would go to Steinbrenner's box. Trump ends up emulating Steinbrenner when he does the, you know, you're fired catchphrase on The Apprentice. Um, you know, this was this was somebody who Trump refer Trump often refers to people. Every, everyone is Trump's best friend. In reality, no one is Trump's best friend. Um, Trump, mm -hmm. Trump doesn't have a best friend. But he would call Steinbrenner one of his best friends or, or his best friend. And, and I do think that he took a lot of lessons in how to behave from him. And he called you his psychiatrist. Well, but that didn't mean anything. Just like, <laughs> just like people whose best friend doesn't mean anything. Should I, um, should I he, tell people one of the references that's uh, breaking out from the book is when Trump, uh, excuse me, says something like, talking to you is like talking to a psychiatrist? He said, I love being with her. She's like my psychiatrist when we were, he was in the middle of a stem winder about his golf course in the Bronx that at that point uh, de Blasio had canceled the contract for uh, and Trump ultimately succeeded in his lawsuit and, and still has the lease on it. Uh, but what I also say is that it was a, a meaningless line, clearly intended to flatter. And it's the kind of thing that he has said in many other settings, just like, you know, his brother is his best friend. And so is George Steinbrenner. Um, the reality is Trump treats everyone like they're his psychiatrist. It's literally everyone he is dealing with all the time. He's working it out in real time. Tina in East Orange is going to look back on New York City in the 80s. Tina, you're on WNYC. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm just, I just need to ask a question because this bothers me. I grew up in the 80s, and everybody in New York knew, everybody in Jersey knew that this guy was a con artist. I mean, everybody, even, you know, like regular people. So this is the point. Like, how does this guy that, you know, become this great, you know, um, this great um, Republican and all everybody, everybody that's Republican or mostly everybody that's Republican loves this guy when he was this huge con artist 
in New York. I just can't. Everybody knew he was a con artist. So I don't understand. How does how does a con artist and a fake become the Republican, you know, the Republican, the Republican king? How does this happen? So I, I guess I would answer it. I, I love talking to anybody who was from New York in the 1980s. Um, the uh, everybody didn't know, I, I think. And one of the things that I visit in the book is how he used this media coverage brick by brick to build this artifice of himself as this tycoon commensurate with, you know, the Milsteins or people, uh, you know, the Helmsley, um, significant real estate tycoons, when that just wasn't what he, who he was. There was enough real there. You know, he had Trump Tower, he had casinos that people uh, uh, thought that that he was bigger than he was. Um, the difference between the five borough view of him and outside New York City was really vast. And a lot of that was just built on this media coverage. I will also say there were a lot of people, and I explore this in the book, who enabled him uh, over his 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 time in New York in that period of time. Uh, you know, people with whom he struck up relationships, like Bob Morgenthau, the Manhattan District Attorney, um, where they had a, a transactional uh, relationship that also was something of a friendship. I think in both of their views, Morgenthau liked Trump. Uh, there were there were aspects of the media that enabled him by just printing what he would say uncritically, even though a lot of people knew that he lied over and over again. Uh, and so I, I think there's a, a lot of things to look at, but but that is how, and this book really does try to explore the answer to what you just asked. Let's talk about the breaking of America. I, m- maybe we should tell people the book is 600 pages, right? So I, ish, so I hope you have a strong backpack, people, if you uh, get the book. <laughs> How how much how much of it is New York? How much of it is White House era? Uh, watch your watch your feet if you drop the book. Um, <laughs> the 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 first half of the book is is New York through about 2014, uh, and then the second half of the book is the the 2016 campaign and and the presidency and and its aftermath. And, and I really did set out to do it in equal parts. Um, the the breaking aspect, and I and I write about this, is that is that, you know, Trump did not create the partisan divide in this country, and he didn't cause the national traumas that this country went through in the late 1990s, 2000, 2001, uh, two wars after that, 2008 fiscal crisis, um, but where where a lot of voters just felt as if nothing had been no no one significant and responsible for for the pain of people who got caught in the housing bubble, um, that they had gone to jail or faced consequences, but he did, you know, fuel it and capitalize on it and, and exploit it for his own purposes. And, and one of the things that I, I explore is how in the 1980s, he, you know, when he's taking out an ad condemning the teenagers who are arrested in conjunction with the central park jogger, uh, rape and beating, um, he, he, and he calls for bringing back the death penalty. And, you know, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, those confessions were later found to have been coerced. The convictions were uh, uh, overturned. Uh, and 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 these men lost their lives. And Trump has never apologized and has never acknowledged that he was wrong. But he clearly came to decide and, and, and sort of, I think, distill his, one of his guiding ethos as hate can be a civic good. And I think that that really governed him in the White House. I mean, I can't think of a, a as big a demagogue that we have ever had in this country. And, and it just guides everything he does. 
Can, uh, um, you left me speechless there. I hadn't seen that line in the book. Hate can be a civic good. I think that I can find it for you if you want to give me a second so that I'm quoting myself. Well, just give me the context. Accurately. The context was as he was talking about, yeah, I just found it. It's when he was talking about wanting to hate um, uh, uh, people who uh, 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 were involved in uh, in hurting others. It was after the Central Park Five. He takes out this bring back the death penalty, bring back our police ad in newspapers, and he talks – you know, glowingly, and I'm sure the story didn't actually happen, but he claims to have seen when he was young, I sat in a diner with my father and witnessed two young bullies cursing and threatening a very frightened waitress. This is in the ad. Two cops rushed in, lifted up the thugs and threw them out the door, warning them never to cause trouble again. I missed the feeling of security New York's finest once gave to the citizens of this city. Then he calls for unshackling the police. These are his words from the constant chant of police brutality which every petty criminal hurls immediately at an officer who just risked his or her life to save another's. And the primary target of Trump's ire was Ed Koch, the mayor, who had instructed citizens not to carry, quote-unquote, hate and rancor in their hearts in connection with this vicious crime in the park. I want to hate these muggers and murderers, the ad continued. They should be forced to suffer, and when they kill, they should be executed for their crimes. It goes on and on and on. But what I say is it was as clear a guiding ethos for his life as Trump seemed to have Hate should be a civic good. And I think that we saw that over and over again. Do you think it's equivalent? Maybe this is more of a philosophical question and not a reportorial one. But do you think it's the equivalent of like some of our listeners might hear that and think, well, I hate Donald Trump. And I think that's okay because I hate Donald Trump because he may actually break our electoral democracy. Um. I think that there are reasons to think that hate in politics is a dangerous ingredient. Um, And I understand that there are people who are going to think that they hate Donald Trump, but I think where it becomes problematic, and I do think, Brian, this is something that is is happening across politics, is that I talk a bit in the book about how people around Trump start to act like him, but sometimes his critics do too. Uh, And I'm not sure that that's healthy for democracy either. John? In Merida, Mexico, you're on WNYC with Maggie Haberman. Hi, John. Hello? Hi, John. Hello? You can Hi, hear sorry. me? I can hear um, you. Yes, I'm in... Okay, I can hear you now. Um, yes, I'm in Mexico, but I was a Brooklyn resident until two years ago. Um, and so I have a question. I know Maggie Haberman hears this criticism all the time, but um, it's it's problematic that she sat on stuff for her book and she's not alone many journalists are trying to sell books and are sitting on information that the public should have known about um and i'd like to hear how she what her response is to that criticism and i'm also curious about your opinion brian as a journalist how you feel about the number of journalists who covered the trump white house who sat on information that the american public should have known about much sooner than before the pub date for the different books Mm -hmm. that are coming out John, thank you for that question. And I I think in your case, Maggie, it revolves around, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but for our listeners, I think it revolves around um, practically just like one line in the book, a quote of Trump that you have where he says, I'm just not going to leave, that he reportedly said uh, shortly after the 2020 election, I'm just not going to leave. And people think that that in particular, once you knew that, 
you should have reported it because it's relevant to the January 6th investigation. What, what do you say to John or anyone else raising this? If I had known that in real time, Brian, uh, w- which is when it really would have had huge impact, uh, I would have put it in the paper. Uh, I found this out well after the second impeachment trial ended. Uh, and the investigation is still ongoing and it's public now. The other two pieces of information that you know I put in the the Times long before the book published, one related to Trump flushing documents down the toilet. I published that eight months ago. Uh, the book just published this week, uh, and another related to Mike Pence and various elements of uh, 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 how Trump was pressuring people to try to get what he wanted. So. My, my short answer, there, there's two answers. One is books take time and it's a process of going back and talking to people over and over again and getting new information. But the short answer is I didn't. I think there are um, many worse examples of that out there than this, since caller wanted to know my opinion. I think some of the bad ones come from some of the tell-all books from people who worked in the Trump White House who could have revealed things in real time. And I guess, I don't know, you must have conversation about this, like at the policy level at the Times, Maggie, right? Um, You know, if something can affect um, policy uh, or people's safety or anything like that in real time, then there must be some line past which, even if it's for research for a book that's not officially in your role for your employer, the newspaper, um, that you would feel some obligation to report it or they would want you to feel some obligation to report it? Is there a, you know, is, is there a sort of a standard of behavior that's written down or anything? I mean, without getting into internal discussions, Brian, the only thing I would say is, uh, you know, I, I, my goal is always to get confirmed uh, reporting into print as quick as possible. Um, and, uh, uh, and especially when it can, when it can, uh, be significant in the moment. And again, that's, that's, uh, why I made clear that he was flushing documents down the toilet, um, several months ago. Um, I guess I would, I would put the question back on you. Um, do you think that people knowing, uh, before the, uh, more recently that Trump had said this thing that I learned about well after the fact, I want to ask you, I just want to make sure that you mention, uh, that we mention Roy Cohn. Uh-huh, Bron- yeah, that would be a big, a big omission. Right, my who, you know, uh, and, I, and I think we should give people a little Roy Cohn 101. I mean, he was a Bronx <laughs> political leader who goes back to the McCarthy era of Joe McCarthy, mm-hmm. Joe McCarthy's side of that. People today, I don't think, know much about Roy Cohn. So what was his claim to fame, really? And what was his relationship with Donald Trump? I'm thrilled that you raised this, Brian. That would have been embarrassing if we had not discussed it. Roy Cohn, among other things, in addition to everything you just cited, was a child of privilege um, and and, uh, transacted with, uh, this was something that Marie Brenner, the journalist, described as the favor economy in New York City. And he was a huge practitioner of it. And he had he was a lawyer. Um, yes, he was famous in the McCarthy era. He was famous for, uh, you know, <clears throat> aggressive efforts to, uh, he was a, a, a closeted gay man who was deeply homophobic. Um, and that defined a lot of his life. He ultimately died of AIDS. Uh, he became Donald Trump's lawyer in 1973 when, when Trump and his, and his father and their company were getting sued by the Justice Department for racially discriminatory housing practices. And Cohn became 
Trump's main enforcer. He became, you know, the first in a, in a or at least, you know, the most visible in a series of, of fixers and enforcers and lawyers willing to, serve, you know, use their jobs as if it was some other purpose, almost like a mafia don uh, in, in service of Trump. And Cohn indeed, you know, uh, had relationships with mobsters and, and Cohn had relationships with celebrities and he was very close with Barbara Walters and, and, you know, he had, he had Rupert Murdoch as a client and he had Estee Lauder, the uh, cosmetics magnate as a friend. And so uh, he became Trump's guide through a lot of New York. And then, and he taught Trump about punching back and punching hard and denying all the time, but he was, and he tried to teach Trump to be more strategic than Trump is. But when Cohn got AIDS, Trump dumped him. And, and that was the end of that relationship. Um, and, and Cohn in, in Barrett's book complains that he can't believe that Trump is doing this to him. Uh, Trump spent the entirety of the White House searching for, I mean, he would literally say, where's my Roy Cohn? Um, and I think James Comey memorialized that, the former FBI director in memos. He, he spent the entire presidency looking for a Roy Cohn. Um, Roy Cohn is not, not a, an avatar for uh, productive uh, staff behavior in a government, but that was what Trump preferred. The book is called Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Maggie Haberman, New York Times senior correspondent. Thank you so much for sharing this with us on the day after the release. We really appreciate it. I'm thrilled to be here, Brian. Thanks so much. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.